James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode 31, the first edition, the first ever first Friday Q&A. We're going to put you on the spot, Mr. LaCour. Yeah, so this is actually fun, right? So, folks, we're um, we're reaching out to our audience, and it looks like what we're going to do this, James, once a month on a Friday? Every first Friday is going to be a first Friday Q&A. So I'm James Hahn II from TribeRocket.com. We are a sales-driven marketing firm, thought leaders, all kinds of great stuff that we do. Um, what about you, Mark? Mark LaCour with uh, ModalPoint.com. We are the oil and gas sales experts. All right, yeah, like I said, so, so – uh, First Friday Q&A, we've got questions. we got a lot of questions. Um, so uh, we're going to put, put you on the spot. I'll, I'll try to throw in as I can. But we got a correction. We got yeah, corrected. This is, yeah, this is awesome, right? So we have people out there that actually take the time. That when we misquote something or we don't, we don't not sure we're talking about, that actually take the time to key punch and help us understand better about this industry. This was great. Yeah, so it's from Tom Moore, who's at uh, a, crew, uh, a cured industry. Uh, I'm sorry, a cured interest. He says, "Hey, Mark, on the last podcast, you were talking about Treasury shares for XOM. That would be Exxon, Exxon um, Mobil. Yeah. Yep that uh, that they bought uh, uh, and that they bought them in the Treasury markets. Treasury shares on XOM balance sheet means uh, stock that hasn't been issued or purchased on a buyback. Unless I heard wrong, great show as always. So, so go ahead and issue your retraction and apology. <laughs> yeah, so a big shout out to Tom for catching that. I actually, um, I went back and listened and I, and I was wrong. I, I quoted that wrong and Tom was gracious enough to point it out. And we love that from our listeners, right? Um, we're humans and if we make mistakes, point it out to us so we can share it out to our listeners and correct it. Yeah, so if anybody here uh, watches, I, I usually listen to the podcast, the PTI on on ESPN. They always have have their guy uh, figure out uh, how many errors. And uh, certainly, I don't know if we can do that live. Um, but we're, but yeah, we always want to learn. And and but right now, it's about teaching because we've got some questions. And we're going to start off with John. And I wish I could pronounce his last name because he's the man. He's a great supporter of the podcast, huge, huge member of the tribe. Um, so I'm going to butcher it right now. It's Potashnik, possibly. I think probably pretty close. Probably pretty close. He, so John Potashnik, Environmental Business Development Associate at Atwell LLC. So here's your question. Regardless of the market conditions in oil and gas, what will companies always continue uh, – What will companies always continue to be busy with? For example, is it pipeline maintenance, updating permits, uh, decommissioning old assets, et cetera? In essence, I'm wondering, during this downturn, what are companies upstream, midstream, and downstream doing to stay busy? So, John, great question. So in this low crude price environment, let me tell you, a lot of these projects are being pushed out. So a lot of the upstream companies that have projects – whether they're on land or they're um, in deep water, ultra deep water, they're not stopping the projects. They're pushing them out. They're waiting for the price of crude to come back. So that's what's going on with upstream. The midstream guys, they they never stop pipeline maintenance. Um, that is an ongoing uh, cost that's figured in regardless of what their margins are because they have to stay compliant, at least here in the States. So the, the maintenance is always going on. It's an ongoing process. And if they're busy, they're actually adding more capacity, so adding more pipe, which is what's going on right now uh, in this low crude product. Midstream is growing. And then downstream guys right now are just booming. They can't build stuff quick enough. They can't hire people quick enough. 
Um, so they're the opposite of trying to stay busy. They're too busy. So I hope that kind of helps you understand the upstream guys are pushing projects out. The midstream guys have to continue with maintenance because they can't take a risk of having a violation. And the downstream guys are super, super busy right now. So then, but what about the flip of that? So what happens when, you know, oil prices are really high and downstream companies aren't booming? What do they do? Wait, ask me that again. I was asking, so the flip side of that. So right now, downstream is booming. They can't hire people fast enough. Right. Um, what about when oil prices are really high, therefore the, the things they make are more expensive? Do they just have to lay off people just like upstream? Yeah, that what they'll do is they'll slow down. They'll spread out their turnarounds. Just the same thing. They push projects out. Uh, downstream, we think, is getting ready, and this is getting into some future predictions, but when we do our predictions for 2016, I think we're going to talk a lot about downstream. Downstream, we think, is undergoing a fundamental change here in the U.S., and I, I think the business, the fundamental business is changing. So it used to be downstream was a low-margin, highly forecastable business. And and I think it's getting ready to move to a higher margin business, regardless of the price accrued. How how so? Well, I really I don't want to say on the show. Let's wait till we do our predictions for 2016. Um, we'll get into it more then. Oh, you're just going to leave me hanging. <laughs> just yeah. going to leave well, me hanging. And, and it's 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 too early. This is a hunch I have. It's too early for me to actually go on the record with it for sure. But I'm pretty confident it's going to hit the the uh, business drivers for 2016. So. Um, but even in even in low crude, low crude environment, um, there's ongoing maintenance and drilling and things like that. I mean, there's still companies drilling, right? Oh, of course. So what people don't realize is the only part of the upstream industry that's being hurt by these low crude prices are the more expensive oil. So oil sands, deep water, ultra deep water, about half the frackers. Um, but conventional reservoir drilling is fine at thirty dollars a barrel. You know, um, Saudi Arabia with their uh, mountains of, of of conventional reservoirs, I think their break-even points around twenty-seven dollars a barrel. So, and, and it's and you know a lot of the conventional reservoirs in the U.S. the break-even points around thirty, thirty-five dollars a barrel. So that that activity is still going on. Yeah, and and a lot of that driven by very small independents and uh, wildcatters and just guys that go out there and they are they're just like, yep, no problem. We're going thousand feet deep and we're going to be just fine. Yeah, if we can get this baby pumping for thirty years, we'll be good. Yeah, and then you look at what's going on in the frack fields. Like, look at the efficiencies that's been driven in the last twelve months. It is ridiculous how much they've wring the cost out of the the frack fields. So, all that's good stuff. Yes, it's uh, it, yeah. So, survival of the fittest. All right, thank you for that question, John. Let's move on to James Gordy, manager in training at HMT. Do you know about HMT? Uh, no, I, I need to do a little research. <laughs> I would like to hear more about what will happen after the crude oil export ban is lifted. Who will benefit the most? What sorts of benefits will we see? How can we prepare for those changes and be ready to benefit from them both personally and professionally when these benefits come? Yeah, awesome question, James. So we, like you, think they're going to lift the export ban. What's going to happen almost immediately is you're going to see a lot of the operators in the U.S. start exporting sweet crude because there's a big appetite for it in, uh, in Central and South America. That's going to actually drive their margins, which is going to give them more money to invest in more exporting. You can see a lot of export terminals be built. You can see a lot of old import terminals in the Gulf Coast be reversed and turned into export terminals. Um, and when you think about all that activity, think about all of the work that's required to do that. So you can see an increase in need for welders and pipe fitters, machinists, um, you know, construction guys, all that sort of stuff. So you're looking at a lot of jobs being created. You look at a, 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 a growth spurt 
on the upstream side of the house. Now, interestingly enough, if we lift the export band, uh, because we will then start putting our crude on the global market, it may contribute to keeping crude prices lower, <laughs> which for the consumer would keep um, fuel prices low here in the U.S., gas, diesel, jet fuel, that sort of stuff. So um, that you know, when, when you think about the lifting the export ban, it, it touches a lot more things than you would think. So think about the cities that now have this abandoned import terminal. All of a sudden, they're going to turn it around, turn export terminal. How many jobs could be created there, right? How many um, restaurants are going to need to be open? How many motels? How many new houses? How many new schools? Um, think about the local community. Think about all that tax money being pumped in the local community. Um, it, it, it would benefit, you know, from everything from the um, operating company who's exporting crude to all the way down to the individuals that live in that community. And then think about on the other end of it. Think about the refineries in Mexico being able to get their hands on sweet crude, which they love. They have a hard time producing their own right now. It will lower the cost of fuels in Mexico, which helps the Mexican people. Um, same way with us um, exporting uh, sweet crudes to other parts of the world that may want to use it for blending for their own refineries. It will lower their cost. So uh, you're going to see a lot of kind of spinoffs, um, positive side effects when we lift the export ban. So I did a little research here, and HMT was founded in 1978 with the objective of providing better technology to above ground storage to the above ground storage tank market. Um, you know, they're yeah, full so suite even of that, tank so, products. So, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so even that, the, so you think of the the tank farms is, is what you, is what everybody calls them, the above ground tanks. Um, there's going to be growth there because when you start exporting, you have to have a place to store it before it's loaded on a tanker. And where do you store it? You store it in a tank farm. So, you know, for, for James's business, you know, y'all should see a big surge in business because you can see new construction of tank farms, which hasn't happened in a while. And so then for him to grow professionally, um, this is me throwing my two cents in here. It's, it, it, it's, or at least my, you can correct me if I'm wrong. He, he just basically needs to go out there and, and become the expert in, in these tank farms and all of the different aspects of that particular part of the industry and, and then be able to produce the intelligence to get ahead of whenever people are going to be needing those projects so that they could, so he could, he could basically make himself an asset to the company in that way um, by, by having intelligence and doing work, uh, doing, doing that intelligence gathering and work off, off time. Yeah, and the other thing that would be great for him to do is actually do some work on geopolitics, figure out which parts of the world would want to import sweet crude, figure out what their import system looks like, what are their tariffs, do they have offloading facilities? And if you learn all that, you will become an expert on something that there really is very few people that have expertise around. Wow, that's a lot of homework, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that helps, James. All right, um, and he also submitted that in the LinkedIn group. So y'all go to the LinkedIn group. And, and, and join. It's, it's triberocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. And next up, we have Leonid Miranov. He says, question one, uh, what impact uh, uh, does a prolonged, I mean, multi-year low price environment, uh, what impact will a prolonged uh, low price environment have on the industry in the U.S. and globally? Uh, like you, I tend to think that 2016 will be a rebound year for oil and more so for natural gas. But what happens if the unlikely happens and they stay low? What what are the opportunities in that scenario? So we'll start with that question. All right. So if we do have a long-term low crude environment, what's going to happen is North Sea production is going to grind to a halt. It's just not viable. The oil sands are going to be shut down. Um, 
the, uh, the you have a bunch of deep water projects we pushed out five or ten years. So you can see that part of the industry starts really, really slowing down. However, um, you can see a lot, especially if you export lift the export brand, you can see a lot of the frackers that have driven efficiencies for the last two years be fine at $55 a barrel, right? A low crude price environment. So you can actually see their activity pick up. Now, of course, naturally, the, um, the downstream side of the, the industry will prosper. And it's already doing that in the U.S., but also start prospering globally. So in the Middle East and in Asia Pacific, they're starting construction jobs on refinery projects, which they've never really done before. You'll see that accelerated. Um, now, the, the, the real crux of the issue is what will happen politically in the world. So um, um, things like Venezuela, they, they, they're going to have a revolution. If low crude prices stay around, it, they're going to overthrow the government. Russia is going to be in big trouble, right? So much of their economy depends on, on $80 a barrel. And if we start exporting crude and start being able to meet Europe's needs, or at least some of their needs, that's one less um, market for Russia. So I suspect even with um, all of Putin's um, um, support in his country, I think you'll see some major economic change there. And then what's going to happen to OPEC? I, I think if we have a long-term low crude price market, you'll see some of the members of OPEC have to leave. They just can't afford to be in that, in that market anymore. And so will it destabilize OPEC? I think so. But really, supply and demand, I don't see it. I just don't see it. I, I, the only people I hear saying that are the Goldman people. Well, there are people out there talking really low prices, and they're talking really low prices because they want you to hire their consultants to help, so they can help you figure out what to do with really low prices. No. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> All right. So, question two. I love this question because it's it's more of a of a sales question. And so, question number two is: How do you deal with a big multinational company? I remember Mark mentioning that you have to build a rapport with the individual manager, but how do you even get to that stage? So that's about doing all the work up front. Um, technology has changed a lot of the stuff in the world. Everybody understands that technology has changed marketing, um, but very few people understand technology has fundamentally changed sales. Sales now is about problem solving. It's not about uh, teaching people what your company does. Quite honestly, nobody cares. So uh, we'll take this low crude price environment. So if I went reached out to, um, say, an operation manager at Chevron Mid-Continent, and Chevron Mid-Continent is their business unit, or OPCO, that basically does the fracking in the U.S., is their fracking unit. And I reached out to him, and I said, hey, I think you're trying to increase operational efficiencies and wring costs out of your system. We've done it with other companies. I'd like just to chat with you, see if we can help you as well. There's a pretty good chance he's going to answer that because you know he has that problem right now. Um, if you reach out to a downstream, a turnaround manager, and say, hey, I think you're having trouble right now here in the U.S. finding enough skilled labor to complete your turnaround projects on time and on budget, he would talk to you, right? Because that's what's going on in his world right now. So it's about doing the research up front and understanding what their problems are so that you can – so it's worth their time to talk to you. Now, the next stage of that is when you get in front of them is it's all about understanding. It's all about questioning. It's not, you don't talk about you or your company at all. When you walk out of that first meeting, you need to understand the problem that the guy that you met with better – as good or better than he does. He needs to talk about 80% of the time minimum. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and once again, you don't want to talk about yourself at all. Then you want to look at what your company does, the product or service, and see if you can help them with that problem. And here's the big one. I'm sorry, salespeople out there, but your your product or solution doesn't solve everybody's problem. <laughs> and so the, the quicker you can admit that, the better. Right. So if you can't help them, you go tell them, you know what, I appreciate your time. I, we can't help you here. And they will respect you for that. And I promise you, somewhere down the road, if you can help them, 
they'll call you. And then if you can help them, you work with the, the, the prospect together, right? You build a proposal together. You don't throw something over the fence. You don't put something together. And you do this because you want him to have buy-in and you want to make sure you're spot on. So the way we do it is we literally get in a room with our clients with a whiteboard and we whiteboard out a solution and the, the client's team is in the room with us and they give us feedback. Yes, we want to do that. No, that's not quite right, whatever. And, and you, your goal is to have total unanimous agreement that what you're finished with is exactly what they need. And then you price it right there because you want to know if price is an issue almost immediately. And when you price it right there, if it is an issue, then as a team, you work on what you take out to lower the price. Or maybe you walk away knowing that you could have helped them, they couldn't pay it. And they know as well that you could help them, and but they didn't want to pay the money for it. And I promise you, if they engage with somebody else and it starts going south, they'll rethink <laughs> about your price. I've seen it a million times. So um, and then, you know, as far as if he's getting tactical, like how do you actually get in front of these people? Um, social media works really well. LinkedIn works really well. But once again, you have to be genuine. You can't go on LinkedIn and ping somebody you don't know and go, hey, I think you need more toner cartridges and we can help you with that. Not even knowing if he cares about toner cartridges. Right, right. Um, yeah. Like sending there. It, it, oh, this happens all the time, right? So you get a pitch in either the invitation to connect or yeah. as soon as you connect, as as you, you connect. get a 500 word, 1,000, 1,500 word. It's like they've made Our a pitch deck. PowerPoint they, presentation. Right. To me all the time. Like they don't even know me and they send me a PowerPoint presentation. Like really? I mean really? Do you really think that's going to work? Right. Right. And, and I think for me the big key here is the paradigm shift of I'm not trying to make a sale. I'm trying to see if you qualify to work with me. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to have total emotional detachment from closing a sale. Your, your goal is to see if you can help them. And if you can't, you need to, you want to know that as quickly as possible. Now, when I say that people, a lot of salespeople, especially sales managers um, have a little bit of issues. That's like, no, I want my people to be passionate about closing business. That's not what I'm saying, right? You should be passionate about closing business. You should be passionate about doing good work for your clients, right? You should be passionate about finding new customers, but you don't want to have an emotional attachment like, I need to close this deal. I must close this deal. Because what that does is make you try to fit your product or service to that problem, whether you can fix it or not. And that's not what you need to do in 2015. Yeah. And just to, to wrap on this question, for me, uh, on the social media side of things and really the rapport and the relationship side of things is you know, look at the person's profile. See what they're – do they post, uh, you know, whatever, publish long posts do they are they a member of some particular organization? What school did they go to? Different things like that, um, because that's type of stuff that you can go out and find articles about, even on BuzzFeed or whatever. And hey, I thought you th thought you'd find this funny, or hey, you know, um, this is you know something that speaks to the pain that you found out about or that you think they have or whatever. And and hey, you know, I just came across this article. Check it out. Um, and, and, and sharing sharing things like that is a really great way to build that rapport so that you your goal is to stop having them look at you as a salesperson and have them have them looking at you as as a friend as or an, an asset as an right. asset right yeah. not even not even a trusted advisor quote unquote a, an asset and a friend that they can count on for valuable information and and you can i mean google is is right there for you. So all you have to do is kind of put a, connect a few dots and figure out what they're into and maybe even find their personal Facebook page and, and you can build some rapport pretty quickly that way. Yeah. And, and let me throw this out there too. 
So cold calling still works very well, but the techniques have changed. So people quit dialing the phone of people you don't know. That doesn't work at all, right? Build a rapport. Social media is great for that. Once you have that rapport built, find out what problems they are struggling with and then talk to them about if you can see if you can help fix them, help them fix that problems. Be totally transparent and have no emotional attachment to the actual sale. Absolutely. That, that is that is key. That's why I used to be the roller coaster tycoon that I was for 16 years <laughs> because I was too emotionally attached. So he closed by saying, uh, keep up the great work, guys. Uh, really appreciate it. So really appreciate you listening. Um, let's move on to uh, Raymond Bart Christer, sales manager at Terra Guidance. We actually just connected on LinkedIn today. And um, he asked, how much production is lost when operators stop using mud logging and geosteering services during horizontal operations? Rephrase, does the, quote, point and shoot, end quote, method of horizontal drilling save enough money to compensate for lost production of a poorly placed wellbore? I've been looking for some uh, data on this, but haven't found any broad consensus. Thanks, Raymond. So what do you think? Yeah, good question, Raymond. And unfortunately, I don't have an exact answer for you. Um, regardless of what our engineering friends and our geoscientist friends may want to tell us, um, horizontal production horizontal drilling is, is a big part of science, but it's also part art. That's why other parts of the world are struggling with it. They don't have the experience or the art that the, our operators have here in the U.S., so, um, you know, geosteering is the most expensive way to do it. Point and shoot's least expensive, but it's going to depend upon the operator and it's going to depend upon the play that you're in. Some operators are really good at point and shoot and you put them in a good play and the, the cost savings um, is way more than the additional, additional money you'd make by, by production if you actually did some geosteering. And once again, the flip side is also true. You could actually um, have a bad operator doing geosteering and have less production and increased costs. So that's the reason you can't find any data on there is because it doesn't exist. And if it does, it's going to be biased one way or the other because there is still a bit of an art into in horizontal drilling. Yeah, and I think for me, what I connect this back to in my own profession of of digital and you know driving sales and, and everything like that is that there's all kinds of studies that come out um, – Buffer app is a really awesome app to schedule, automatically schedule out your tweets and things like that. And you'll get all kinds of different, you know, tweet during this time to this time because that's the best, right? And that anybody who goes and follows that logic doesn't understand that that's based on an average across however many hundreds of thousands of users that might not even be in your industry. And right. so connecting that back to this particular case, even if you did find a hard and fast consensus type thing, it wouldn't necessarily apply in the play that you're trying to drill. Right. And, and, and then also to add on to that, um, one thing that comes to mind when I read this question is drilling, info, drilling info's um, DI analytics, their acreage, their acreage grading that they do. So they've done a lot of work, especially in the Eagleford, where they'll grade acreage, you know, A, B, D, C, uh, down to F. And then they'll also grade the, uh, the operator in terms of the, the types of return they get out of, out of the different types of rock, right? And, and so one thing that you could do is what I do, which is steal all the best ideas because, I mean, why reinvent the wheel? Um, so you could go out there and say, well, who are the best operators? How do they get the most out of the ground? And so you'd go 
you know, all right, in this acreage grade, they're produ- these are the handful of producers that are doing really well. Let's, let's go look at those completion reports and see what they did in that situation instead of, you know, looking for some broad consensus view. Right, right, right. So the actual experience is always more valuable than random data. Definitely. All right. So thank you very much for that, Raymond. We have an anonymous question. This isn't anonymous like like they're not going to come and hack our podcast and like, you know, steal no, our credit cards. No, not that anonymous. Or- this, okay. guy didn't, this guy didn't want his name mentioned. And, and, and when you read the question, you'll see why. All right. Yeah. So I'm a salesperson for a service company and we've had two rounds of layoffs already. I've only been here for a year and I'm scared that I'm going to lose my job. Yeah, definitely. I see why. Should I just go get another job outside of oil and gas now? Please help. Yeah, so um, anonymous uh, anonymous <laughs> listener. Um, I, I want to call him by name, but I, I be careful. I don't anonymous listener. So first thing, I everybody understands your fear, right? It happens. The thing that's a little bit different because it's your first year. This is the first time that you've seen a downturn. I've been through four of them. It always comes back. So um, what you should do. You should concentrate on building up your skill sets, your experience in this downturn environment, right? So you need to learn as much as you can. I know what company you work for. It's a big company. You need to spend time networking within your own company so that more people know who you are. You need to take on some stretch assignments, right? So go to your manager and go, yes, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, but I'd like to do this. Is that okay? So that your manager sees that you're going the extra mile. And what's going to happen is if you stick in this industry, which I advise that you do, um, you will, once you get through this downturn, you will be so much more valuable to the company that they, they will reward you, right? They'll promote you, you'll get a raise, but you've lived through your first downturn. And that experience is going to serve you well the next time it happens because it will happen again. So, um, you know, if I can help, reach out to me direct. You, uh, you uh, reach out to me on Twitter. Um, feel free to direct message me. Um, st- stay in the oil and gas industry. Don't let the fear get to you. This is a commodities-based market. It goes up and down. I promise you, I know you don't want to probably hear this, but it will go up and down again in the future. The other thing you may want to do is you're you're in a part of the industry that's suffering right now. So you may want to look and, and pick up some education around, let's say, downstream, right? Or at least understand better what their business is. Uh, your background would apply there as well. And so if you have that ability to jump um, the different segments, which very few people in the gas industry have, then you have no fear, right? Because one segment is always hot. So, um, so it's one of the things that we do with our clients, right? So we had a record year this year, but all we've done is refocus our clients' efforts on the downstream side of the house and got away from upstream. So um, anonymous listener, um, it, everything's going to be okay. Work on bettering yourself during this slow time, and I promise you, you'll be glad you stayed in the industry. Yeah, and and to add to that, as as a person who failed at sales for a very long time, don't let the fear get in the way of your behaviors. Meaning, pick up the phone, and, you know, go go and do the activities, network, build your personal brand. Is kind of the the language that Mark was using in terms of uh, networking within the company and everything like that, because. Uh, it's very easy when you start getting overwhelmed by fear to start shuffling business cards instead of doing the things that will get you money. That's right. And and, and, and this is the interesting thing is that, um, you know, I'm very open about how bad I was at sales for a long time. And I was at Quicken Loans during the boom, right, during the mortgage boom. And uh, I happened to string together six of my best months um, ever and in a row, which was crazy. And I got promoted to senior banker, and then I left and went to seminary for one semester, came back, couldn't put it back together. But 
when I came back, the market crashed. And of course, me being the fearful guy, uh, kind of in, the, in a similar situation as anonymous listener, I was like, oh, I got the hell out of here. And I went over and worked for AT&T. Now, what's interesting is that all of my friends who are top banker, who were top bankers at the company are still there and they're still making a lot of money. And so in any environment, it's kind of like the, the whole argument about, well, you know, wealth is always concentrated in the hands of the few. Well, if you took all of the money in the world and gave everyone the, the exact same amount, eventually it would all get into the same hands because in sales, the 80-20 or 90-10 rule applies, right? And yep. no matter what, 90% of the people are going to do, t- uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry, 90% of the people are going to do 10% of the revenue. And the, you know, the inverse of that, you, you could stretch that out to 80-20. And so I, I really think that no matter what, it's, it's a decision that you have to make as a sales anonymous person. <laughs> um, what kind of mindset am I going to come at this with? Am I going to come at this with the victim mindset of, well, now low, you know, prices are low and things are bad and, you know, or are you just going to say, yeah, I don't care about, I'm, I don't, what, oil prices? What about oil prices? That, that's how, that's, people ask me that question all the time. They're like, well, how's your business doing with these oil prices? And I'm like, why? What, what are they? <laughs> you know, because I don't let the, I don't let the price of oil dictate how I conduct my business on a daily basis. And so uh, this is a great question um, because I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there in the, in the same situation. And no matter what, just keep doing the behaviors and doing the things that those top 10% people do, and you'll be one of them. If you let Absolutely. the fear take over, then you'll be one of the lower, <laughs> you know, 80, uh, 80% people, and then you'll be on plan and then you know, the rest of that story I do anyway. Yeah. So James, you're absolutely right. You know, mindset is everything. So if you have the right mindset, you'll get through this just fine. If you let the fear take over, it's, it's going to burn you. And, and that scenario doesn't matter what industry you're working in. So right, right mindset will carry you through this. Absolutely. All right. That is the end of our questions. Awesome questions for our first ever first Friday Q and a, and if you didn't get one in, well then just send us questions. Um, you can get a hold of Mark, on Twitter, Facebook, or no, he's not on Facebook. On Twitter, no, LinkedIn, no I'm, I'm I'm working on it, folks. Um, on Twitter and LinkedIn, also email all of his con- all of our contact information. Actually, is at the bottom of every show episode, and you can get that at the show notes for this episode, being triberocket.com forward slash tw31. So uh, I know you thought hoped at least that I wouldn't have a weekly onion, Mark, but I did. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> 45-minute phone call to credit card company goes great. So that that I'll leave that at that because um, we'll let everybody who enjoys the onion enjoy the onion. And we'll, yes, we will. We'll, we'll let the old man be an old man over <laughs> here. <laughs> All right. So um, on to events. Uh, uh, API Houston YP's first event, Honeywell Customer Excellence Center. Um, tour followed by a happy hour Thursday, October 15th. Email James Gordy, jgord1 at gmail.com. So uh, just go to the show notes, <laughs> triberocket.com forward slash TW01. 
I'm um, sorry, uh, TW31. And, and you added this one in here, Mark, so you know a little bit about it. What's going on? Yeah, so I'm on the board of directors for the API, the American Petroleum Institute, and I stood up a young professionals group last year, and here's their first professional development event. So what they're doing is several times a year, they're taking um, young professionals on gas and helping them with their careers. So in this case, you could get a custom tour of Honeywell's Customer Excellence Center. This is stuff that only Honeywell's clients get to see. You can see some very high-tech, hands-on stuff in the oil and gas industry, but you get to see an environment where it's all actually working, almost like you walked on the bridge of the USS Enterprise. Um, this is You can't buy access to this. You can't get in. What you need to do if you're a young professional, and a young professional is anybody 35 years of age or younger. Oh, I slid right in there. Or anybody has less than five years of, of um, experience in oil and gas. You need to go join API Young Professional Group. It's only $25 a year. And for $25 a year, I mean, this is worth way more than that. So um, go to the show notes. Um, reach out to James Gordy. He will talk you through. He will handhold you through the process so you can sign up for the API Young Professionals. And you actually get this go, go on this professional development tour um, on the Honeywell's Customer Excellence Center here in Houston, Texas. Now, there's a bunch of other benefits of joining, but trust me, folks, if you're in the oil and gas industry and you're new to it, join the Young Professionals Group. Great group of people. You have peers that we now have a high trust environment. They do social events. They do professional development. We have an official mentoring program with that. It's just it's a great, great, great organization. And for 25 bucks that you can expense off, you can't beat it. Awesome. And that, so so you've got a couple of weeks to prepare for that one, but don't procrastinate. Like, no, no. You have to sign up for it because they have to have your name on the list or you're not getting in. Right. Okay, great. So so go to the show notes. Going, yeah, and then because they're young professionals, they're going drinking after. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. All right. And then um, uh, next week, the 2015 Q&A Technology Forum, and that is um, uh, Sunday – or I'm sorry, yeah, Sunday, October 4th through Wednesday, October 7th. Um, I know people in Houston in general and in Texas were always looking for a reason to expense a trip uh, to New Orleans. <laughs> um, so if you're looking for an, an excuse to go to New Orleans, um, it is the, uh, let's see, it's the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers Q&A Technology Forum. So do you know much about this organization, Mark? Yeah, so so this is a this is a good organization um, on the on the downstream side of the house, and this event is basically built around refinery operations and uh, process technology. But they're touching some cool stuff like cybersecurity um, practices, um, plant automation, um, decision making, uh, vendor selection. So it's a really cool event. It's a, I wish I could have gone. I would have liked to sit here in some of the sessions, especially the cybersecurity and the uh, plant automation stuff. But I have uh, conflicting interests, so I'm not going to make it. Got it. Well, um, I'm trying to decide if I can make it. <laughs> New Orleans, baby. Um, no, I, I, uh, I, got a, I got a few client things to take care of myself on that front. So we didn't get any reviews. And as y'all who have listened to the show before know, I'm a middle child and I need attention. So please give us reviews at trybracket.com forward slash TW reviews. Folks, we don't ask you to pay anything for this. So do me a favor. Take two minutes out of your day and give us reviews. It helps us spread the word to allow us to keep producing this content for you and your peers. And the LinkedIn group, which I mentioned earlier. But yeah. 
Yeah, if you're not a member of our LinkedIn group, go join it. It's the, the companion to the podcast. Um, we have a, a bunch of people in there, a bunch of really good people that share best practices, stories, connections. Uh, James and I actually uh, uh, interface a lot. James, I've actually seen James correct people's writing, which for free, you know. So um, it's go join the LinkedIn group. It's a good group of people. And it's also the way that you can um, um, help us guide the show and let us know what you think. And if we have enough people that want to do something, we'll do it. Yeah, and and it's where you can ask your question for next month's First Friday Q&A. So thank you to everyone who submitted questions, and we look forward to doing this. This was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I learned fun. a lot. I yeah, learned I, a lot. I'd, I'd be interested to hear back from our, our viewers on what they thought of the show. Is, is this They're listeners, Mark. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> you do that sometimes, and I've never corrected you, so I might as well do it while we're recording, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, – <laughs> um, we love to hear back from our listeners. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think about the show, if you like the format or not. Yeah, definitely. Since it's the first time out, if if, you, if it was just painful, then we want to know about that so we can stop doing it. Um, if you if you enjoyed it, then uh, let us know so we'll keep it rolling. All right. I think that's it. You got anything else, Mark? Uh, you know what? I think I'm going to start uh, live streaming this on Periscope so when I say viewers, you can't correct me. <laughs> I did think about that. We still have to do uh, to do a blab test, um, so yeah. maybe in the future. All right. I'm trying All to right. cue you up, though, man. Go. Yeah. So, folks, do great work. Pay it forward. We will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. Mark, I must confess, you're a very beautiful lady. <laughs>